While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. There, okay, there are two ways that I know about <laughs> the face. There are two ways. The face you made when I said football. <laughs> there are two ways that I know that football is happening. And the first way is to be at the gym while there is football on. Okay. And the second way is to be on Twitter while there's football on. Okay, because while to while you're on Twitter, oh, I'm sorry, you're gonna go into. The <laughs> I was thing. gonna All welcome right. to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew, and, and Andrew I, doesn't yeah. like football. That's a, I think that's the the verbal equivalent of a fumble. Is what just happened. Oh God, I'm running the wrong direction. <laughs> so yeah, when you're on when you're on Twitter and you're reading about football, there are two layers of it. And they're both equally predictable. Like, layer one is the people who are actually watching football and commenting on it. Yes. And then layer two is the people who are like, oh, my, oh, no, football. Oh, I'm on Twitter, football, football, football. And they're, like, making fun of the football people. Yes. Like, the anytime Twitter, like, someone makes a sports ball joke. Yes, or like, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the classic, like, I don't understand sports. Like... It's weird. <laughs> it's weird because, you know, there is a legit argument to be made that, like, people who make fun of nerds and, like, stereotypical nerds who, like, might go to a con and dress up as their favorite Halo man or whatever. <laughs> like, they're only the one. The one Halo man. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Um, like, the people, I've seen a pretty valid argument that why would you get to make fun of those people if you go to a bar wearing a shirt with someone else's name on it so that you can get drunk and cheer for that guy on tv right right so then Mm -hmm. why does twitter get to make fun of jerks who watch football i don't know see that was that's there was a time and it was not all that long ago when when you were tweeting about baseball Yes, and you would just tweet somebody's name in all caps, and it was Chooch, Chooch, yeah, what, whatever, Chooch, caught uh, for choice. You would do that, and I would go out of my way to be like, "Oh, baseball, because <laughs> somebody you... likes baseball, and it's because I'm a jerk, right?" And <laughs> recently, I've been—I I don't know—like—is this—is this what growing up is? Is I'm like. <laughs> This is a person who's like getting joy out of something. Why don't I just stop stomping on him? Why don't I just stop kicking him in the throat and let him enjoy this thing? Like, I hate everything. And so the stuff that I love without reservation, that I can like look past his flaws and actually love it. Like, I hold that. I hold that so close. So I, I don't want to do that to people anymore. And so I don't make fun of people who watch sports. Maybe there I are can, some people who don't like it when I tweet about Breaking Bad. I don't know. Yeah, I can chart our friendship by the things you've made fun of me for liking. <laughs> that makes me sound <laughs> awesome, by the way. <laughs> and it's fine, because, like, I know, you know, it's, it maps to the distinct things that you like, you know. All things are worth <laughs> making fun of in moderation, I suppose. Moderation in all things. Um, But I just have a distinct memory of that. Of, like, the season where Battlestar Galactica started getting bad and you kind of just decided you were over it and the rest (laughs) of us kept watching it. Um, I have distinct memories of you during that period. It's a good period for you. You were in rare form. I don't know. Rare form can mean a lot of things. (laughs) 
I think you've grown up a lot since then. How about that? Okay, that, okay, that, that's what we'll say then. <laughs> Is this growing up? Um, all right, so let's <laughs> let's get on with the show now that we've learned about ourselves. Um, books? books, books. What did you read this week, Andrew? I read Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. And in retrospect, that, I wish we'd read this during Spooktober, but I'm glad that we read it sometime. Okay. Um, now, we've talked about Ray Bradbury before. We read The Martian Chronicles like almost 70 episodes ago. <laughs> Which is crazy. I thought it was way more recent than that. I thought it was like 60-something, <laughs> and it's 20-something. No, I think <laughs> like, there's – yeah. I think something about how I perceive time is affecting how I remember the podcast. Because, like, I remember the first couple <laughs> that we did really well. And then there's, like, this period where I, just, yeah, I read that book. Great. Someone told me that we, that we talked about Christmas Carol. And I was just like, sure. <laughs> My friend yeah, Owen was really, like, yeah, I just... Re- it's kind of amazing. Uh, My friend Owen was like, yeah, I just listened to your Christmas Carol episode. I was like, when did we do that? Which Christmas was that? I don't remember. Yeah, there's there's like that early period, which I like to think of as our flop sweat period. Yes. And then there's like the middle period where we're like, we're doing this. I don't know who's listening to it, but we're just going to keep doing it. <laughs> and then like in the last like 20, 30 episodes or so are, are we know people are listening and now we have to buckle down period. <laughs> yes. Now we are. We have an audience that we like and appreciate and we want to make them happy. So we got to keep doing this thing. So in the interest, I suppose we better actually do the show. Right. Yes. All right. Yeah. Uh, so Ray Bradbury and Something Wicked This Way Comes. Um, Ray Bradbury is the author of Fahrenheit 451, um, The Martian Chronicles, obviously we talked about. Another book that I've never read or even really know anything about called The Illustrated Man, which I think is another like carnival-themed book, it must it be. It ties into this book, but not as much as you would think. Okay. Um. He, I think what's interesting about Bradbury, and feel free to chime in, Andrew, as, as any of this pertains to the book, um, is that he grew up in like kind of small town Illinois, which I believe was Waukegan, Illinois in the 20s. And that kind of became the prototype for whatever town is in this book. Is that true? Greentown. Greentown. Oh, and um, there, this is great. like it, it was kind of a retcon thing almost, but um, there are three Bradbury books that are kind of set in this town. Um, the first one is Dandelion Wine, which precedes uh, Something Wicked. And then the third one is called Farewell Summer, which was written in 2006 or published in 2006. And um, like he he thinks he he Bradbury says that it's his Greentown trilogy, but the three books or at least Dandelion Wine and Something Wicked don't have much to do with each other. Like there are not common okay. characters. They're just yeah. common themes. I think that um Farewell Summer is a sequel, like a direct sequel to Dandelion Wine, and since I've never read those two, I cannot like say how they relate to each other, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's done this trilogy of books that all take place in the same kind of victim fictional town or universe okay um he kind of his influences are you know edgar rice Bur- a bunch of people we should probably read for the show um we've read hg wells for the show we haven't read any edgar rice burroughs and i we haven't read any jules verne which we've we kind of haven't we try not to just keep going to the you know the well of canonical white men we try to spread that out a little bit uh so i'm sure we'll hit those guys eventually but he's kind of really influenced by these turn of the century pulp and genre writers which bradbury is you know fits into that vein um it's interesting i think that fahrenheit 451 is this widely regarded science fiction book and bradbury has constantly said that he's a fantasy writer uh because he is writing he he thinks science fiction is the possible, but fantasy is impossible, and that's you can explore different things that way. I think that's I think we, we I think we've talked about that distinction. Yeah. Before, um, he had a great quote. 
he liked Vern a lot because he said that Vern believes the human being is in a strange situation in a very strange world, and he believes that we can triumph by behaving morally. Uh, I think that comes into this book a little Definitely, bit. Definitely, yes. All right, so we'll revisit that. Um, Bradbury himself wrote all his life, uh, kind of starting in starting with genre fiction, like very specifically aping other writers, like even Poe. Um, you know, he did go to college in California. He, as we said, grew up in Illinois and later moved to L.A. He's won almost every award I can think of. Like, I don't know if he's won, like, a Pulitzer or anything, but he's won a whole slew of uh, awards, both genre-related and not, as well as, like, the Presidential Medal of Being a Great Writer or whatever it's, <laughs> I don't know what it's called. No, I think, I think you nailed it. I think that's what oh, it is. Good. Uh, <laughs> he was, you know, he was good friends with Gene Roddenberry. Did you know that, Andrew? I did not know about the Gene Roddenberry thing. I was going to talk about I, another one of his famous friendships. Uh, I, I think did there's not know I, Gene Roddenberry. I think Ray Bradbury may have even give given Roddenberry uh some feedback about initial Star Trek episodes, which is cool. Yes. Um, what was your connection that you were going to pull up? Well, the um, it it ties into the creation of this this book. Actually, there is um, there is a short story that Bradbury had written called "The Black Ferris," that um, he wanted to develop into a screenplay, I guess, or or he wanted to make a movie, and he wanted to do it with his good friend Gene Kelly, who you may or may not. Oh, have seen and singing in the rain, or like a million other things. Yeah. Okay. And so he and Gene Kelly were friends, and Bradbury said to Gene Kelly, oh, I would like to do something. I, I would like to work with you on something. And um, so he made this story, The Black Ferris, into a screenplay, which Kelly shopped around and couldn't sell. And then for a few years after that, Bradbury kind of worked on it some more, and it developed into something wicked. So this book cool. was a short story, was a screenplay, and then finally a novel. Interesting. I think um, that he and Gene Kelly are friends. Like, it doesn't. <laughs> I thought all Gene Kelly's friends were just dancer people. Yeah. When you think of, like, celebrated multi-decade science fiction writers or fantasy writers, you don't think that they're yeah. friends with, like, tap dancing movie I do, stars. Yeah. I do not think Gene Kelly. Like, <laughs> when would they even have met? I don't know. Um, The other. There's two other things I want to share that are, you know, less specific biography stuff i mean bradbury himself kind of says that he had a a pretty good upbringing and, and was you know loved and supported by his family and he and his wife were married for like almost 50 years there there's less in in terms of uh like personal strife in his there's not much personal strife in his biography i'm sure there's obviously things that happened in his life but not very writerly no he would just get up and write all the time i think he like wrote literally every day of his life very prolific uh in 2010 uh, and 2011, when Fahrenheit 451 became an ebook, uh, I don't know if you remember that when that happened, Andrew, which I seems kind of against the spirit of Fort Fahrenheit 451, where they're burning books to like control thought and things. Uh, <laughs> Bradbury was quoted as saying. <laughs> Uh, he was quoted as saying, we have too many cell phones. We've got too many internets. We have to get rid of these machines. We have too many machines now. And I, I can't believe that a man of his note said, we've got too many internets. I it's, just I, love it. There's a, there's a lot of hand, hand wringing about ebooks and about technology in general that I dismiss out of hand but when ray bradbury says we have too many machines like no matter what ridiculous stuff he says before that <laughs> like i don't disagree with him no you're right i think we do have too many machines even though he does not understand the internet as one singular thing apparently like <laughs> <laughs> we've got too many know. shadow I internets I'm it's it's a it's a weird line to draw because I'm I'm against that knee jerk thing where like oh you got to feel the paper in your hands to to really read a book and like 
the dystopian like Skynet stuff. You've got to find a line in there somewhere, and I like to I like to think that I find it most of the time. There's probably a middle <laughs> ground, yeah. Uh, so the last thing I want to share is one of Bradbury's kind of self-realized origin stories um, for himself as a writer, and this kind of ties directly into something wicked. Uh, so when Bradbury was 12 years old, he was one of his uncles had passed away. And he was supposed to go to, like, the wake of the funeral, you know, after the funeral. And he, like, couldn't go and got out of his dad's car. Like, he had his dad stop the car. And there was a carnival in town. And he went to see this guy called Mr. Electrico, which is an awesome magician name, (laughs) if I've ever heard one. Uh, And as he said of himself, this comes from an interview with the Paris Review, which is a, a... really wonderful interview from several years ago um and he said he was running from death probably you know as a little kid not wanting to go see his uncle's wake uh and he went up to mr electrico and mr had mr electrico teach him like a magic trick uh and then mr electrico like walked to the like shore of lake michigan with him and like sat and had a conversation about whatever and then out of nowhere told ray bradbury that he was his best friend from world war one in paris yes this is the part that i ran into and that he had like died in ardennes france and that ray bradbury was basically the reincarnation of mr electrico's war buddy uh and told him you have a different face, a different name, but the soul shining out of your face is the same as my friend. Welcome back. <laughs> uh, and Bradbury's like, well, maybe he meant that. Maybe that's just a magician being weird. Maybe he knew that I was like a kid in trouble and needed to hear that. Uh, but then later he went back like several, you know, a couple years, a couple days later. And uh, Mr. Electrico, like in the middle of his act, pointed his sword at Ray Bradbury and said, live forever. Yes. Uh, and as yes. and as Ray Bradbury said, and I decided to. That is awesome. That is the best story a person could. I don't know why that made him a writer. <laughs> like, he doesn't explain how that distinct anecdote made him go and, like, pick up the typewriter. But it does instill in him this, like, desire to be more than he is i guess i don't know i that that story's great ray bradbury passed away in 2012 yes so. he did not live forever which is unfortunate but he did live for a long time well and and as we'll talk about today his stories may well live on forever if we don't all descend into too many internets this podcast may live forever if we don't get onto it pretty oh soon. god okay <laughs> tell me about this book let's go all right, something wicked this way comes, published in 1962, and it was adapted into like I have not seen the movie that it was adapted into in 1983. My understanding is is that it is okay, but it's mostly <laughs> been forgotten. Okay. Um Bradbury himself said of the film, um not a great film, no, but a decently nice one. <laughs> well, and he he was into film. He had he was an Academy Award nominee, and he had won an Emmy for another script he wrote. So I guess he had his opinions. Sure. But um, so the, the bulk of the book, I mean, all of the book. All right. The two main characters who we're talking about are uh, Will Holloway and Jim Nightshade. They're Great two name. 13, they're really good names. Um, <laughs> two 13-year-old boys. Uh, Will was born one minute before midnight on October 30th, and Jim was born one minute after midnight on October 31st. Nice. God, I love the like relationship between them so much. Um, They have been best friends for pretty much forever, or at least as long as they have been living next to each other. They're next door neighbors. As long as they had object permanence and understood yes. that people yeah, were yeah, people. Yeah. For, yeah. As long as forever is for a 13-year-old. Okay, so forever. And um, some of, I mean, th- this book is just full of really great phrases, which I'll, I, I've highlighted a few of and, and, and we'll let you know. But um, the contrast that Bradbury draws between Jim and Will 
is some of my favorite stuff because Will is a little more reserved, a little more hesitant, a little more careful, and Jim is a little more... Um, I don't know if I want to say rebellious because I don't know what he would be rebelling against, but he's more adventurous and, and has, he doesn't worry about what's going to happen before he does stuff. What you're saying is you've got a Corey and Sean situation. You're going to have to explain that reference for me. Boy meets world, Andrew. Okay. Have, have you as a Wait, boy he... never met the world? No. Boy like, meets world. The only thing I know about that is Topanga is a dumb name. Oh, <laughs> I'm just going to keep going. Okay, please um, I'm gonna, do. I'm going to read. There are a couple different sections where Bradbury draws a contrast between the two of them that really stuck with me. Um, So they they go on all kinds of adventures all the time. They go running alongside each other all the time. And just... They they each have a subtle influence upon the other, which which I think is really summed up by this little section of the book. So there they go, Jim running slower to stay with Will, Will running faster to stay with Jim, Jim breaking two windows in a haunted house because Will's along, Will breaking one window instead of none because Jim's watching. God, how we get our fingers in each other's clay. That friendship, that's friendship, each playing the potter to see what shapes we can make of the other. Hmm. Which I like just a lot because I think we've all had that that kind of friendship where each person does something that they would not do if they were by themselves. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I agree yeah. with that. And I definitely had that, that best friend growing up, uh, a guy I haven't spoken to in years. The kid who lived across the street from me was my best friend growing up. and. He could not have been in many ways more different. Uh, and I also just remember the distinct moment when his, you know, I found out that like his mom liked having me around because she thought I was a good influence. <laughs> oh, like, you were that kid. You I was not that on the kid. bad influence side of the You know, so like <laughs> the couple times we got in trouble, it was, you know, in retrospect, probably largely his fault. But like I was there. I was involved because we were friends like that's what you did um yeah I, I totally identify with that that i mean that's just people together right it's like a little bit of you a little bit of me kind of yeah i mean there, there, here's another section that i liked that um that's from will's perspective and you and you spend most of your time in will's head though it does jump around a bit um and running, Will thought, boy, it's the same old thing. I talk, Jim runs. I tilt stones, Jim grabs the cold junk under the stones, and lickety-split. I climb hills, Jim yells off church steeples. I got a bank account. Jim's got the hair on his head, the yell in his mouth, the shirt on his back, and the tennis shoes on his feet. How come I think he's richer? Because, Will thought, I sit on a rock in the sun, and old Jim, he prickles his arm hairs by moonlight and dances with hop toads. I tend cows, Jim tames Gila monsters. Fool, I yell at Jim. Coward, he yells back. And here we go. That's so good. I know. It's really... That's really like he... good. Well, that also... I was I was going to say, when you said we spend most of the time with Will's perspective, I was going to ask maybe why we thought that is. And then that passage kind of revealed it. Like, because Jim is the doer, it makes more sense for Will to be our primary narrator, right? Right. Like that care that type of person is is gonna be your observer or your person who stops and considers what's happening, um, right. and most likely, you know, not to assume anything, but like the reader is likely to identify. I bet that the reader identifies with Will a little bit more. I think ways. the reader identifies with Will a little bit more, and at least I identified with Will a little bit more because I, like, the audience is the one who's like, don't go in there. You know what's going to happen in there, and you know it's not good. And, and you need Jim road. to be the one who does it. The, the Jim is the one who goes in there. Yeah. And Will is the one who watches him go in there. Um, so you've got Will and Jim are the two main characters, and then the third main character is uh, Charles Halloway, who is Will's father. Okay. 
who is a uh, he's a 54 year old man Mm -hmm. and he there are a lot of instances in the in the beginning of the book where he just feels like he is too old to be will's father because you know will's 14 he's 54 like oh okay yeah um there's that and i think that that still happens a lot like men are just fertile for longer than women are and so they can find themselves in a position where they're old dads yeah old dads old parents it's an interesting um, thing yeah like he he charles roved around for a long time and then settled down with Will's mother when he was 39. And so he's he's kind of got this I don't know that it's an inferiority complex, but he just doesn't he doesn't feel like he he almost doesn't feel like Will belongs to him because he's just so much older than he feels like he should be. Oh, so Charles feels like he is younger than he is and he feels like held back by his age or he he's kind of yeah he's kind of young in his mind but 54 in his body (laughs) okay um that makes sense i don't know i've we haven't really talked about this much on the show but i dads are fascinating to me (laughs) from a like (laughs) we have not talked about this much on the show and i don't want to derail the book too much but i think it'll probably come up over the course of the discussion is just that like uh I my dad moved out when I was in like fourth grade. So like the person I am today is very clearly be you know molded as much as by his absence as by anything else. Um and the people I did have around. So like the adult male relationship or the teenage male relationship with a dad is just completely foreign and a mystery and a like amazing phenomena to me like and as someone who is getting to an age where like i think about what it will be like when i hopefully have a kid like what is that what is that i don't have schema for that in the same way that i think i have for other things um it's just fascinating my my mom and dad are still married still hanging out my (laughs) my dad's i'm 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 29 and my dad is 50. Okay. He'll be 51 in February. And so my my parents were young, like uniquely young, like even among like among all of our friends, I think my parents are among the youngest if not the youngest. Fair enough. What say their say their ages again? Um my they're both 50. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. That's my mom's yeah, 50. Both the same age. 56 57 yeah and um yeah like i we we don't i mean there there was some of the teenage angst stuff because teenagers are terrible and i was no (laughs) exception but (laughs) but yeah he like he has a lot to do with the way that i am like like just okay here's an example is like we we never had a lot of money coming up yeah and um my dad was in the Air Force for a while, and then he left when I was about 10 because um, he and mom both wanted to go home, and home was Ohio. That's that's where their families were. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, he – we rented this really awful house for a while, just, like, falling apart around us, and we didn't want to invest in anything in fixing it up because it wasn't ours. Yeah, of course. And – um he my my dad has this has this thing where he works on cars and like motorcycles he he has a thing where he he builds them from scratch and just collects these parts over a long period of time and then eventually makes this finished thing and so he had this motorcycle um i think it is a 1954 indian chief motorcycle i could be wrong about that i have not actually thought about this in a long time well, I know everything about motorcycles, and I will tell you that you are exactly <laughs> correct. So he he going. started he started building it when I was born, mm-hmm. and when I was eleven or twelve, he sold it on eBay to get the down payment on the house that we moved into. 
I think you, yeah, you have. We haven't talked about this on air. I, I think you've told me this story before. It's really, yeah, really cool. And it's just like he had this thing that he he'd been working on for a really long time, and it had he had gotten it to the point where it ran, and he could like ride it around, but it it had not been in that state for a super long time. Yeah. <laughs> and he he took it and he sold it for his family, and like that. I don't know. That's that's. I think about that a lot. I guess. Yeah, that's a. It's it's one of those things that when you're uh, definitely when you're a kid, you have no idea of the magnitude of that gesture. Like yeah, and, I, I and even when your dad had an idea of it. Yeah, when I, when I was you know twelve, thirteen, however old I was when I, we did that. Yeah, I feel like the best I could come as a as a middle schooler to understanding what that is is like watching the right episode of Home Improvement where Tim Allen like sells a car that he built or so, you know like but even then it's like Tim Allen so it doesn't really matter he's just being a goofball and getting hit with stuff so it's like it wouldn't register full <laughs> emotional weight um yeah Dads are cool, I guess. So there, I mean, that that ties back into the book because, you know, boys and dads. Of course. And they. So okay. Like Will, Will and Charles end up like you, you know, by the, at the beginning of the book, they're kind of alienated from each other because Will's got all the stuff that he wants to tell his dad, but he can't quite bring himself to. And Charles has a thing where he feels a little distance from Will by how old he is. Mm-hmm. And um, those those barriers fall, you know, toward the middle of the book where um, where Will explains his predicament. We haven't even talked about the predicament. He, yeah, we got to get into the wickeds pretty soon. Um, what? All right, I've I've got a I've got a yeah. We're like thirty something minutes. What? In, so okay, I have two important questions for you, Andrew. Okay, hit me. What? Referring to the title of the book, what is the wicked thing, and what is this way? that it's coming <laughs> all right um jim and will are running around having a good time being being boys you know let boys be boys and um whoop, whoop. and there is a carnival that rolls into town cougar and Dark's pandemonium shadow show whoa <laughs> And it rolls into town a little bit later than you would expect a carnival to. Like it's it's anybody who sees the flyer, like it's 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 Will, it's Jim, Charles, they all see these flyers, and they all think that it's just a little too late for a carnival to be rolling into town. Like it's you know, it's it's September getting to be October. And there's actually there's another really good spot at the beginning of the book. Like it's not it's not summertime fun. Like you're not right getting you're not going outside in your shorts anymore right here's how it starts this is the prologue first of all it was october a rare month for boys not that all months aren't rare but there be bad and good as the pirates say take september a bad month school begins consider august a good month school hasn't begun yet (laughs) july well july is really fine there's no chance in the world for school June, no doubting it. June's best of all for the school doors spring wide and September's a billion years away. So it's October. School's so you're in school. Month. Not time for carnivals. Right. But this carnival rolls into town. Cougar and Dark's Pandemonium Shadow Show. Okay. And uh, Jim and Will go to investigate this carn- carnival and they quickly find themselves in over their heads. <laughs> They run into uh, Cougar and Dark, the two guys who run the carnival. Um, Cougar is this red-haired guy with really mean eyes. Dark is also called the Illustrated Man, which we mentioned a little bit before. Like he's tattooed Um, or something? Illustrated just means tattooed, and they try to call him a tattooed man at one point, and he says, no, no, I'm illustrated. (laughs) You've got it all wrong. I am illustrated. The tattooed man was my father. <laughs> Don't call me that. That's my father. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. And so they they run into Cougar and Dark, and they 
there are two attractions at this carnival that matter. There is one, the mirror maze, and there is the carousel, and they are both intertwined. The mirror maze seems to show you a a really bad, undesirable picture of your future self. Like it, it there there are a couple of people who wander into it. Charles walks into it, and a teacher of Jim and Will's name is Miss Foley walks into it, and it seems to show them as really old, decrepit versions of themselves. And kind of drives home that impulse to not be like, where'd my youth go? You know? <laughs> so that's like, it's not just a like a warped glass effect. Like this is magic. Like this is. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and it gets more explicit when you go to the carousel because, okay, you ride the carousel, right? I, when you, when yep. it's going forward, every time it, revolves you age in a year what every time it goes backward you unage a year you youthen youthen you benjamin year? button yeah you benjamin button by one year <laughs> <laughs> wait and so will, so will how many Jim people are this... wait how many people are riding the carousel is the whole town just like on the carousel no 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 like no. i'm getting and old actually... let's get old <laughs> That's interesting is that um, the only people in town who are really aware of this carnival's malevolent stuff are Jim, Will, and Charles. Okay, of and course. And everybody else is kind of unaware. Because the carousel is marked as out of order. Oh. And then Jim and Will, Jim and Will kind of sneak onto it because Jim is intrigued and Will is going along with Jim. Mm -hmm. And that's why I read those two passages that kind of sets, sets out why those two characters would do that. Of course. And so they see Cougar ride the carousel backwards, and he goes from being like a 40-ish year old man to a boy of about their age. Weird. And he, he goes to Miss Foley's house. Miss Foley is their teacher, remember, and um, poses as her nephew, and she kind of, she knows that he's not her nephew, but she kind of goes along with it because she had been in the mirror maze. She saw this old version of herself. And she's got it in her head that she wants to ride the carousel because she knows that it it can strip those years from her. Huh. So the deal with Cougar and Dark's Pandemonium Shadow Show is that it tries to draw these people who want something. I mean, I mean, there may be other things, but in this book specifically, it's it's about aging. Um, who want to be younger, um, who want to be older, it draws them in like promising things okay but then like it, it becomes a be careful what you wish for thing like miss foley wants to be younger and so she gets into the carousel and then she comes out a little girl who is who can't take care of herself who has nobody to take care of her and so she's alone in the world and the only place she can go is the carnival and so that that is that's the origin of this whole tent of freaks who oh. um, mr dark kind of if not commands, then is certainly in charge of. Okay. Because the ill it, it's not made, it's made explicit in a couple of places. I don't know. It's it's kind of, it's not a main point of the book, but but one gets the impression that among Mister Dark's illustrations are representations of all the freaks who have joined the circus over the years. Okay. And so at one point during the book, like there, there's a blind witch who's, who's trying to do something and he's trying to keep her in line. And so he pinches the like image of her on his wrist and she like feels pain from that. Ah. So that gives, that gives you an idea of the relationship between the illustrated man and uh, the Mr. other dark carnies. and all the, yeah. all the other freaks who, most of whom you don't get a real good feel for. Like, I'm not going to go into it because if we're running long already somehow. <laughs> um so will and jim try to go to miss foley's house to tell her not to you know something is up with this carnival you don't want to you don't want to do what you're thinking of doing but um uh cougar as a 12 year old boy and you know he looks like a 12 year old boy but you look in his eyes and you can see that he has been alive for a lot longer than that he tries to frame them for burglary and then they chase him back to the carnival he jumps on the carousel, you know, to become his adult self so he can deal with these 13-year-old boys. But Will damages the controls. 
And so he ends up going forward on the carousel by something like a hundred times. Oh, no. And by the time the carousel stops, he's just this desiccated, mummified, Ah! just impossibly old man. Death by time um, machine. Yeah. And and Mr. Dark runs. He ends up running this electricity through him, which keeps him alive. And that's he he is called Mr. Electrico. And that is where that connection happens. Uh, Of course. But um, most of most of the rest of the book is dark hunting for Will and Jim uh, running into Will's father, who initially Will doesn't want to tell, you know, what's going on. But when once Charles runs into Mr. Dark and like covers for the boys, basically. Will and Jim speak up and tell and tell Charles everything. OK. And. um, It's kind of complicated because, you know, the, the carousel can make people young, you know, Miss Foley obviously wants to be young again. But Jim, who is. You know, it's it's just Jim and his mom. Um, all of Jim's siblings, I don't remember if they died during childbirth or if they died very, very young. Mm-hmm. But he had siblings and they're not around anymore. And okay. like he's the only one who's around for his mom. And so he has he has this desire to be older than he is. So that he can help her and be a man. Right. And so yeah. and and so he's being drawn to the to the carousel in the same way that uh Miss Foley and to a lesser extent uh Charles are being drawn is you know they just feel they feel too old he feels too young and this carousel even though obviously it it does not give you what you want like it gives you too much of what you want yeah it's a monkey paw scenario right it's definitely a monkey paw thing and so they're drawn to it and that's that's like the crux of the the conflict of the book i guess and they're and ultimately it's leading towards a larger conflict with Mr. Dark and what he's doing in the town, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, the, the short version is that, and I we've talked about this before, is that sometimes things that are tropes feel less like tropes in the books that they kind of show up in. But the, like, you've got this blind witch, and there's there's one point in the book where Jim and Will have been taken away by Mr. Dark, and Charles has been left, you know, he's got this broken hand, he's kind of been left to to die, uh-huh. basically, by Mr. Dark. And this witch is willing his heart to slow down. And he comes to this point where he says, you know, this, this fear, like these people only have the power that I give to them by being afraid of them. Mm -hmm. And so he laughs in the witch's face and she, you know, it really, it like physically hurts her and she runs away. And that's, like that's how the that's how Mr. Dark and everybody are overcome. Like it's just Charles and then Will and then Jim all laughing at them and ignoring them and like not giving them the the power, like the fear huh. that they need to to have power over everybody. Interesting. Yeah, that feel yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. That does feel like a fantasy trope in a you know, like staring the evil in the face and just saying Duh, you're dumb. Like, and being able to defeat it that way seems, in retrospect, kind of like a thing I've seen before. But I, you know, I wonder how much yeah. this originated. That death doesn't exist. It never did. It never will. But we've drawn so many pictures of it, so many years trying to pin it down, comprehend it. We've got to thinking of it as an entity, strangely alive and greedy. All it is, however, is a stopped watch, a loss, an end, a darkness, nothing. And the carnival wisely knows we're more afraid of nothing than we are of something. You can fight something, but nothing? Where do you hit it? Has it a heart, soul, butt behind, brain? <laughs> no, no. So the carnival just shakes a great croupier's cupful of nothing at us and reaps us as we tumble back head over heels in fright. Hmm. C-R-O-U-P-I-E-R. If it's croupier, croupier, I don't know. I don't know. It. I'm not sure what it means. But that's the that's the thrust of it is like the carnival controls through fear. And if you don't give it what it wants, then it loses its power over you. Hmm. So what I've read about the book in, in terms of kind of what it's grappling with, Andrew, you know, I know that what you're saying, like the function of the carousel and what it's able to give people is kind of 
their own issues with age and and their own age but it also seems like they're Bradbury's interested in morality in a way like is that present in the book itself like good versus evil in this kind of scenario like clearly dark and the car you know the various carnies are evil beings that are supposed to like you know hurt these people and these people are good like is that explicit in the text at all or is that just kind of analysis on our end I mean, there there is certainly a good versus evil thing going on here, but I think what's more interesting is the the internal conflicts, like what the characters go through to deny that. Like, the, like the, the end of the book, Jim is actually on the carousel still, like wanting to go forward, but there is part of him that's reaching out to Will, you know, trying to get him to pull him off the carousel. Mm. There's, you know, Charles in the mirror maze seeing this old version of himself, but being talked off the ledge by Will. Like, it's just, it's about, I don't know if it's about like coming to terms with yourself, if that's, if that's what it is, but it's, it's, Mm. you have the stuff with the witch and with Mr. Dark and with all these external sources, but I think the more interesting conflict is the internal stuff. So, okay. So and um and so th- so the book ends with, you know, evil evil has been vanquished, and everybody is you know approximately the age that they should be. There are reading <laughs> there. Well, I mean, there are readings of it that say not even there are readings of it. Like Jim and Will go around on this carousel a time or a time and a half. Okay, and it is not wound back and it is not brought up. So like you you would be within your rights as a reader to assume that they are just a little bit older than they should be. Like not old enough to throw things off necessarily for them. Cause I mean, that's the thing in the book is that, you know, Charles is like, I'm 54. Like if I become a boy of 10, I'm not going to be able to relate to other 10 year old boys. Like I'm going to be isolated. Yeah, of course. By this, by this weird youth. And so, so it's not enough to create that kind of a rift. I don't think between them and their peers, but it's, you know, it's them and Charles who has come to terms with being older and like with feeling younger, like yeah, just feeling that that's okay. And um, they they're just they're all running away from the carnival through the fields, and um, here's the here's the passage I wanted to get to. Perhaps the boys slowed; they never knew. Perhaps Charles Holloway quickened his pace; he could not say. But running even with the boys, the middle-aged man reached out. Will slapped, Jim slapped, Dad slapped the semaphore signal base at the same instant. Exultant, they banged a trio of shots down the wind. Then, as the moon watched, the three of them together left the wilderness behind and walked into the town. Mm. So it's like, you know, Jim wanted to be older, Charles wanted to be younger, Will just wants everybody to to be okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and they all they all end up together at the end which i think is very it's very sweet that's, i wonder that's the end of the book i yeah i wonder if um the jim and and will ending up like a tiny bit older thing it's the difference between the desire for those large age skips and like feeling out of place and just legit growing up you well, know. I think they matured a lot during the course of the book by dealing with with all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I think it's kind of, you know, almost wonderfully relevant that at the beginning right. of this episode we are talking about uh, growing up as a person. <laughs> and see, that was the that was the that was the thing that I wanted to become the core of the podcast, but now it's just going to become the end of the podcast. Is have you ever at any point in your life? wished you were older or younger than you were mm. and i'm sure that you have like i know that i have that's yeah when now that you talk about it you you mentioned that you had a big question i was wondering if that might be it that's um, the question yeah and I, if you if you need to think i can i can go with mine first but. go with yours first go with yours first i mean there have been a couple of things i mean right out of college i was like 22 
and I got this job in the college, like the college that we went to in its IT department, I managed to parlay this full time, this half time job into a full time thing. Yeah. But, um, you know, for a long time, I was like, I was 22. Everybody kept thinking I was a student. Nobody really took me mm. seriously for a while. And at that at that time in my life, I wish I was older. But a few weeks ago, when I was snowed in in Chicago, which we alluded to in, I think, last week's show. Yeah. I ended up at this weird, like, 24-hour bar with a bunch of people who were still in their 20s, but who were much younger it was like 21 23 26 yeah yeah and i felt a little like i was on the outside looking in at them hmm and just feeling i don't know maybe maybe i'm just super attuned to the place that society thinks i should be into as like a married person with a career but <laughs> <laughs> fair enough it just i i felt i felt a little out of place in a way that i didn't like it in a way that I had not encountered very often before, like like the idea of being too old to relate to something. Yeah, and I, yeah, I know I, I know that when you bring that up, like there are a bunch of like thirty six year olds who are like, "Oh, you're stupid. You're an idiot. Oh, you're you'll wish you were this young again in the future." But yeah, yeah. Well, there's that. I don't think it's an invalid way to feel. I don't know. No, and I I feel like for me, I've always you know since. I do kind of draw a line before, like, say, 13 or 14 and just kind of be like, yeah, I was a person then. But that's that's just whatever. <laughs> like, I feel like <laughs> the person I am now kind of started to crystallize between 14 and 18. Right. You know, most people do. Um, and even at that age, I was. Being guessed as slightly older, like unless you knew, like unless you knew exactly what grade I was in, unless you knew exactly when my birthday was, and this has kind of continued to this day, um, people tend to assume I'm two to three years older than I am, if not more. Um, so less the like sense of I wish I was older or I wish I was younger, I've always just kind of been really aware that I'm maybe not the age that I am in both directions does that make sense yeah yeah i think so like i have a an unabashed appreciation and love for like dumb nonsense like dinosaurs and panda bears like (laughs) and anyone who's a good friend with me can send me a message that's just a picture of either those things or like a thing they found on the internet and know that it will make me happy and it's because they were thinking of me and now i'm i'm very thankful for that but on the other hand, like, I'm kind of an old man in, in a variety of ways and kind of a, a little more old-fashioned in, in some of the ways that I think about things um, that I feel like I'm maybe older than I am. So, I, like, I think it's it's less that I have a desire to go in any one direction, but that I feel like I am not necessarily 28. I'm, I'm either sure. direction. And I think yeah, that you've, you've never you've never had a Tom Hanks moment. No, where you wish you were big, and no, and then became big, and then was confused by it. Um, <laughs> but I I do also I haven't been doing this thing since I turned about like eighteen, where every couple of years I'm a certain age in my brain. Like I think right now I think I'm twenty six, and I'm not. <laughs> like yeah, I I feel like that too. Like I was 18. Yeah, I was 18 until I turned 21, and then I was 21 until I turned 25 or so, and mm-hmm. I've been 26 for a few years now, and it's gonna be weird when I'm not anymore. I think you jump right from 26 to 30. I, I think, think that's what yeah. I'm planning on doing. I think that's know. what it is. Uh, so we'll see how that goes yeah we'll probably still be doing this podcast so. let's hope so you'll get to hear all about it <laughs> uh is there anything else we need to cover andrew no i mean i feel like we've talked about the book a little bit less but it's it's just it's it's more interesting 
what it's it's more interesting to read it just because of the way Bradbury writes. And I've read I think I've read a lot more passages from the book than we normally do. Yeah, fair. Just to give you an idea of what his writing is like. Like that that's part of the reason to show up. And then the He's other reason gifted. is the Yes, right. And then the other reason is the thematic stuff that I've I've brought up. The stuff about how old you are versus how old you feel. The thing about just just being like letting nature take its course, like being as old as you are without feeling you need to tamper with it because that can lead to really bad stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a little bit of the, the good versus evil fight. But if, if, if you do choose to read this one, it goes down super easy. Like it's a really quick read. And, um, yeah, it's just it's 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 not like the Martian Chronicles. It's not a bunch of short stories. It's it's just one self-contained story that is really entertaining to read. Has a lot of really great imagery in it, and touches on some very like basic human stuff in the way that I think a lot of the best books do. Cool, you know, ba- basic human fears and hopes and 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 things like that. All right, well. If you, the listener, feel like you are either too old or too young for your current life, uh, you can send us your carousel requests. Uh, you can email them to overduepod at gmail.com. Uh, we recently got in two really nice emails, one from Emily, who sent us a message after listening to our Mr. Penumbra episode. Uh, she said we talked about a lot of issues that are relevant to like library school students which she just recently graduated from from um so that's super cool and she said she might recommend us to her professors which is really nice and generous of her uh we also got a great email from paula uh among you know a couple other nice things she said and some suggestions suggestions excuse me for the show uh, she also wanted to quote the 1997 issue of The Joy of Cooking to tell us that Andrew, a couple months back, was indeed making a cobbler or a pie. No, a pie. Come on. Paula, I've You're done right. you wrong. You just, you just want me to be making a cobbler so much. No, she says, therefore, Andrew made a pie. End of debate. <laughs> I'm sorry, Paul. Cobblers are simply deep dish single crusted fruit pies. The crust is usually on the top, though occasionally is on the bottom. Cobblers used to be made with pie dough, but with a sweet, rich biscuit dough is more common today. So I made a pie. All right. Good job, Andrew. You made that pie. Uh, I made a pie. Folks have also been tweeting at us at twitter.com slash overdue pod. Uh, the big wonderful tweet this week came from lee and some other people shared it as well they found a choose your own adventure twitter account uh, <laughs> it's at wnd underscore go if anybody wants to try it out uh, it sends you to a bunch of other twitter accounts that give you options is actually really clever so thanks lee for sending that in uh and then we got some facebook messages uh some great response to our moby dick episode last week uh kayla sent in a really nice message about laughing at us in her dining room and Aubrey <laughs> Aubrey told us she's listening to us abroad. Uh Alex sent in a metal song about Moby Dick. I don't whatever, that's cool, I guess. Cool. Yeah. Uh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh and Kayla also was kind enough to give us a review on iTunes. How did she find that link, Andrew? She may have found it on overduepodcast.com, which is our website on the internet. Uh, up there, you can find links to us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on RSS. Uh, you can use all of those to subscribe to us in whatever podcasting application you you choose to listen to. Um, on that website, there are also Amazon links to the books that we have read, the books that we are reading, and the ones that we are going to read. If you click on those, you can buy the books, buy whatever else you need to from Amazon, and uh, we get a little bit of a cut of it, so it helps you support the show. It helps us pay for books and whatever. Um, we've gotten a couple requests in um, the last couple of weeks about expanding that a little bit, particularly for people who are outside of the U.S. So we are looking into that. Just sit tight and uh, hopefully we can make it happen. Craig, what are you going to read next week? Uh, I just finished reading Batman The Long Halloween. It's a graphic novel from the late 90s. 
that's a collection of 12 or 13 issues of Batman uh, that were really interesting, given to me as a gift over the holidays and seemed like a good entry in our, you know, bibliography in terms of graphic novels. It was a pretty substantial inspiration for the recent spat of Batman films. So I'm Mm -hmm. sure we'll talk about that. If anybody has opinions on those Batman films or kind of the modern iterations of Batman and superheroes, please send them in. They would probably make for good fodder on. And there was also a, a direct follow-up to, to long Halloween by the same illustrator and writer called a dark victory, I think. So if you have thoughts on either of those, do send them in. Um, the week after that, we're going to be going back to the Choose Your Own Adventure. Well, we're going to be reading The Secret of the Ninja. Choose Your Own Adventure, <laughs> book number 16. And we hope that it's as good as it sounds like it is. Um, everybody, we will be back next Monday. Thank you so much for listening. We we love you all. It's It's been... Uh, it's, so, it's so great to just look at... at even the Facebook likes and the reviews and, the, and stuff like that come in one by one over the course of the week. It's just, it's really gratifying to see so many people listening to the show, responding to the show. And it's, 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 we like it a lot. So thank you all. Yeah. It really, Um, there's, there's no better motivator to read a book than the internet being excited for you to talk about that book. It's a weird, (laughs) it's a weird thing that I didn't think was ever going to happen to me because I didn't know that it could happen to me. Uh, But thank you guys so much. It's really kicking you're you're really making 2015 a great year for the show and and we really appreciate it. Yeah. So we'll be back next week with some Batman and in the meantime everybody try to be happy.